If you can open up to John 20. Last week we had, uh, in a sense, the resurrection. I say in a sense in that um, we only covered the section where the body was missing. They didn't exactly know what had happened. And so uh, today we're gonna, they're going to discover, or at least she's going to start discover exactly what happened in the resurrection. So, uh, picking up in verse 11, we'll read through 18. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbanai, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Let's pray. Father, we ask that as Jesus opened the minds of the disciples on the road to Emmaus, that he would open our minds, that we too might understand the Scriptures, that we might understand the reality of the resurrection, and therefore might know Christ more fully and ourselves more fully. For your glory and our good, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Grief often produces unusual responses in people. I remember the first funeral of which I was a part. I was not, uh, thankfully, giving uh, the funeral message. Um, it was an extended family member of a church member in Florida, and they thought, you know, Steve might need experience, and so they asked the, the main pastor if I could kind of sit in and help out. And so I sat in and helped out, and very soon I was very glad that he was there. Because as a relatively new pastor, I was not prepared for what unfolded that morning. Because the wife of the deceased stood up in the midst of the funeral service and declared to us all that he's alive and he's told me that he wants to go home. Her grief was so great that she could not imagine life without her husband. And she imagined that it wasn't true that he was just laying in the box 
wanting help to go home. And so grief, extreme grief, can blind us to reality. Can make us uh, wish for things to be very different than they are. And it's not only about death that that kind of grief can hit us. But here, it is also grief. Grief that has blinded Mary, even in the midst of her love. Our big idea this morning is that uh, the resurrection resolves grief for mission. Yes, mission emphasis has begun. A little early, shall we say. The first thing I want us to consider is that grief confuses and blinds us to God's purposes. You see, Mary has returned to the tomb after alerting Peter and John uh, out of her love for them and her love for Jesus because she has discovered that his body is no longer in the tomb. And as I think about this passage, I'm reminded of where the red fern grows. Many of you may be familiar with that story. My daughter doesn't want to see the movie anymore. Okay? And that's because one of these two hound dogs, siblings, raised together forever, it seemed, uh, had passed away in the process of hunting. Tears me up, even. The other dog was so distraught that it went to where he had buried the dog and just laid there. Afraid and unable to move until that dog too died of grief. I'm reminded as well of Rizpah, not a name that you probably remember from the Old Testament, but in 2 Samuel 21, uh, David had received this revelation from God that the injustice done to the Gibeonites was to be punished upon Israel. And so what happened is that that punishment was going to fall upon the house of Saul. And Saul's concubine, Rizpah, had two sons that were slain in that punishment, that judgment. And Rizpah was so overwhelmed by this. They, of course, were placed publicly because they were considered to be cursed. Their corpses hung upon a stake. And she laid there for days upon end, chasing away the birds of prey, protecting the bodies of her son. Grief can make us do strange things. And so here we find Mary unable to leave the tomb of Jesus. She continues to weep or lament, fearing the worst that someone has taken his body. That is where her mind keeps going. Someone has taken his body and I must find it. And so she goes to what she thinks is the scene of the crime looking for someone who may have seen what happened. And so as she weeps, she stoops down because to, to look into the tomb itself. She doesn't walk in, but she peers in and she sees these two, to her at that point, men. She does not recognize them yet for what they are, although John tells us exactly what they are. They are angels, and they are in bright linen. They're shining men. 
She does not recognize them for this. And they rebuke her. Oh, so gently. When we hear this phrase, woman, again, we remember this is not said in any derogatory sense whatsoever. It is meant to be gentle towards her. Woman, why are you weeping? And so there's this gentle rebuke to her that's intended to point her to the truth. And if she recognized them for who they were, something amazing would have happened to her. They're angels. They're in a tomb. That should cause us to stop for a moment. Because tombs for Israelites, for Jews, were considered to be unclean. That if you went into the tomb, you then had to go undergo ceremonial cleansing before you could participate in the worship of God. An angel who is pure more than any human being would be, would not be found in an unclean, impure place. Something has happened so that that which is normally unclean is now clean. And that something, of course, is Jesus resurrected. Jesus, who instead of becoming unclean when he touches the leper, instead the leper becomes clean. This Jesus has cleansed the uncleanness of his tomb by his resurrection. And there's this little hint there that she should recognize, but in the midst of her grief, she does not see. And it's understandable. She sticks to her interpretation of reality. She says, they have taken away my Lord. Do you know where they have put the body? And so she continues with thinking that Jesus, his body has been stolen. And as she's talking with the angels, what happens is that Jesus comes up behind her, but she does not recognize him for who he is. She assumes that because this is in the midst of a garden, that he must be the gardener and he might be the one who has taken the body away. Now, again, that makes no sense. It's a tomb. The body's supposed to be in the tomb. Why would the gardener come and take the body away? It's not logical, but that's what happens when we're grieving. We don't always think logically. She's unable to perceive that it is Jesus. And I'm reminded of Hagar, who when she was cast out, she and Ishmael were in the wilderness. They were thirsty. And God, it says here in Genesis 21, then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. Okay, that's the important thing. The well was already there. But in her distress and in her grief, she never saw the well until God opens her eyes and then she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy to drink. Jesus is right there before her eyes and she can't perceive that it's Him. And it's not just because there are tears in her eyes. And Jesus repeats initially the words of the angel's woman. Why 
Are you weeping? And then he adds this, Whom are you seeking? Note, not what are you seeking. Whom are you seeking? She should recognize that she's not just looking for a corpse, but that she is looking for Jesus Himself, not simply His body. This is, again, a mild rebuke similar to that which was given to uh, Clopas and his, his uh, companion on the road to Emmaus. O oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. She has heard the words of Jesus. She has heard him speak of the reality of his coming resurrection, but she's not believing in his resurrection. She doubles down. She thinks that perhaps the gardener has taken away the body even though she sees her Lord in the flesh. And I want us to remember that we all struggle to see God's promises when our eyes are filled with tears. It's not the physical problem, it's the emotional problem that blinds us to recognizing God's purpose and plan and providence, that we somehow forget everything He has said in that moment of sadness, and we we think that God has stopped working, that God has gone on vacation, that we've somehow been abandoned or forgotten, just like Mary thought that it was all over. This must be my I'm reminded sermon because I'm reminded of the lyrics from God Moves in a Mysterious Way. Ye fearful saints, that describes Mary and often describes us. Fresh courage take, the clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. She's living in fear of the future because she thinks Jesus is dead, but there's a great, beautiful storm of blessings that are about to pour down upon her, even though she doesn't know. God is not limited by whether or not we believe He's at work. He continues to work despite the unbelief of the saints at times. It's hard for us to live by faith instead of by sight. And she's struggling with that very thing at this time. And so we see that though grief blinds us to God's promises, it doesn't mean that He Himself has stopped working. Perhaps you are there. Fresh courage take, my brother or sister. Secondly, we see... Jesus was resurrected, though not yet ascended. See, Mary wasn't the only one who didn't recognize Jesus. We noticed, I mentioned uh, Clopas at the end of uh, Luke's Gospel was also one who didn't recognize. And there's something dissimilar about Jesus, dissimilar enough that they wouldn't immediately recognize Him for who He was. 
Paul alludes to something like this in 1 Corinthians 15 when he talks about the resurrection, and he says that there are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. And so he's trying to explain to the Corinthians uh, something that is very difficult to explain, but that when you are resurrected, you will not be identical to whom you are now. There is a continuity and a discontinuity between your current body and your heavenly body. And so Jesus is partaking of a heavenly body at this point in time with his resurrection. And so there's an element of discontinuity such that it's not immediately apparent to Mary who he is. While bearing the wounds that he will show Thomas soon, we see that he doesn't appear to be utterly disfigured like you might expect him to be as one who was crucified because she looks at him and thinks he's a gardener, not a walking corpse. Okay? We see just as Hagar's eyes were opened, we see that Clopas's eyes were opened so that they recognized him. And so here we have her eyes opened when she hears one word, Mary. When Jesus says Mary, two things are going on. One, he knows exactly who she is. There's a continuity in his resurrected state in that his past didn't cease to exist. His memory has not been wiped clean. He knows this disciple of his. He knows this person who loves him. He knows this person he loves. She's not a stranger to him. He is not a zombie, as one atheist mentioned last weekend in their rather pithy quote, trying to make us fool like fools, that we somehow believe in zombies. Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, is not a zombie. He has a memory. He has intelligence. And he speaks to her. And speaking to her, she hears secondarily the voice of the Good Shepherd calling her by name, and she recognizes him. Suddenly, it all makes sense. Her eyes are open. Her heart is open. And she falls upon her knees. We see in uh, Matthew 28, as he tells this, that there were not, it was not just Mary, but the other women were there. And Jesus mentions uh, greetings, and they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. And so she, rec she recognizes who he is, and her immediate response is to fall before him in worship, in praise. Okay. This is what she does. And that is when Jesus says to her, do not cling to me. Now some translations, I think, do this verb a vast injustice because they say, do not touch me. 
And then when they do that, they sound, it sounds sort of like a couple of kids in the back of the car on a long car ride. Will you stop touching me? Keep your hands off me. That's not at all what Jesus is saying. This phrase has been uh, confused and misunderstood in many ways. We see from that parallel account that they're grasping him. They took hold of his feet. They are touching him. She's touching him. The point is that she doesn't want to let him go. Think of all of those videos, and some of you have lived these videos, of a troop, uh, a soldier returning from deployment. We're moved by these. Oftentimes there's a ball game or, or the, uh, the parent sneaks into the classroom and the, the child turns around and there's mom or dad. And they're so overwhelmed that they just don't want to let go. And we can understand that. I can understand that. That's what this is like. He's unexpectedly there, and she wants to hold him because she has lost him and never wants to lose him again. She doesn't want to let go. And this is why Jesus says, do not cling to me. It's time to let go. But we see here, so far, she has seen Jesus, one sense. She has heard Jesus, second sense. And now she's touching Jesus, third sense. Okay? Jesus has a corporeal experience or existence. He's not a phantom. He's not a ghost. This is not a spiritual resurrection that has taken place. This is a physical resurrection that has taken place. He is walking. He is talking. He is interacting. This is very different from that funeral uh, that I was a part of all those years ago. That was the only person who heard the voice of this man and, and thought he should go home. All the rest of us knew he's in a casket. He's not moving. But here we see Mary is not the only one who experiences a walking, talking Jesus that can be touched. The other women we see from, uh, from Matthew's Gospel, as well as from Luke's Gospel, the, you know, Cleopas, he takes the bread, he breaks the bread. Okay? He's able to touch things, manipulate things. And as we're going to see here in John's Gospel, he's going to appear to many of the disciples. And he's going to be heard. He's going to be touched. He's going to eat. This is a real resurrection. And John is providing proof of this post-resurrection Jesus that it's not a hallucination. He continues when he says, do not cling to me. There's a purpose and a reason for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Now that phrase has brought about all kinds of strange theories. And I'm not going to regale you with these theories. I don't have time for that. Nor do I have the inclination. But I will say that we should not believe that Jesus is in some sort of transitional state between his earthly body and his heavenly body, and somehow if she touches him, that it, she'll mess it all up. Okay? Like it's some big science experiment, you know? 
um, or something like Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., one of those inhumans that touches something and then takes on the qualities of that or whatever. It's not what's going on, though. Some people have floated that as a reason here. He still has work to do for our salvation. He has done the sin-bearing. That work is finished. But he still has work to do. He must still ascend to the Father and thereby ascend to his throne from which he will then pour out the Holy Spirit upon his people that he might dwell in us and lead us and empower us in ministry. And so, the ascension is a necessary aspect of our salvation, one that we often take for granted. If you look for books on the ascension, you will not find many. I can only think of one written by a Puritan. That's how we've neglected this idea. Okay, It is there in the ascension that Jesus takes up his rule as Messiah and gives the Spirit to all who believe. So we see that Jesus appears to Mary because there is still work for him to do for our salvation. Third point is that Jesus honors overlooked people with a mission. You see, Jesus was not satisfied to reveal himself to her. He actually honors her by appearing to her first of all. That was very countercultural. Okay. Uh, let's remember that a woman's testimony was not valid in court, but Jesus chose to appear first of all to a woman. Okay. John hadn't even mentioned Mary until the crucifixion. In the other Gospels, she shows up earlier, but here, that's the first time. It's like she sort of parachuted into John's Gospel, almost, you know? She's an invisible person until all of a sudden, at the end, there is Mary. And so his readers, if they haven't read the other Gospels, would probably go, who in the world is this, and why is she so important? And yet, she is important. Unfortunately, within her culture, a woman, as I mentioned, was often looked down upon. This was the sort of ignored sex. And that is a part of the corruption of the fall. The world had forgotten that they too were made in the image of God. That women are image bearers just as much as men are image bearers. And so what we see here is that Jesus honors her with a mission. He says, go. Go to my brothers and say to them. And the first thing we should recognize is that when he says, go to my brothers, he's not meaning his physical blood brothers, but he's speaking about the disciples. And something has shifted here because of his death and resurrection. They are now adopted sons of God, and he views them as brothers. They're different in the sense of my father and their father. He has a unique relationship with the father as the eternal son, but now we too are able to call him father. My God 
and their God. He's always been face to face with God as it talks about in John 1. And now He invites us through Him to enjoy that same face to face kind of relationship with God. So this amazing thing is revealed in that phrase, go to my brothers. But let's recognize that Mary here is a disciple, lowercase d. She is not a disciple, uppercase d. She's not identified with the 12 that has now become the 11. She is not an apostle, capital A. But she has been given a message for the uppercase d disciples okay been given a message there's unfortunately some people that have the notion or at least this is the notion I hear okay Perhaps I'm misunderstanding completely, and this is a straw person argument. Um, but if women can't be officers in the church, then it's almost as if they're insignificant. Okay. But I hear that from people who want women to be able to be officers in the church. They want significance in the church. And they, what, it, what it seems to sound like to me anyway is the only way a woman can be significant in the life of the church is if she's an officer of the church which by extension would mean that every man who is not an officer in the church is thereby insignificant to the church. See, that's not really a good argument, for me anyway. Okay. She's not, Mary is not an officer in the church, but Mary is incredibly significant. And Mary has a very significant thing to do. She is going to declare a theological message to the disciples. She's going to declare that the Jesus is risen, resurrection, but also the reality of he must ascend. He must go to the Father. This is a very theological message. And it's connected with the gospel because we don't simply believe in Christ crucified. We also are called to believe in Christ resurrected as well as Christ ascended. And so the message she brings is really a gospel message to the disciples. She's not a second-class person in any way, shape, or form, and none of the women in this room should be considered second-class Christians. The ascended Christ. In other words, the Christ who rules. The Christ who is not only Savior, but the, the Christ who is also Lord, which means that we answer, just like Hebrew national hot dogs do, to a higher authority. That's part of the gospel message. When we're called to ask why we're so different, why our ethics and our moral positions are different from the people around us, that is the reason. Because we answer to a higher authority than local governments, state governments, federal governments, supreme courts. 
we answer to a different authority as well as a higher authority. We declare Jesus ascended as Lord. And we're supposed to live like he is, though that can be challenging at times. Okay? She was to bring this message to the brothers, which again, in addition to the idea of adoption, we see that John, uh, Jesus says in Mark 3, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Okay, it's not about blood. Okay. To whom should we bring this message? We should bring this message to our families, our friends, our neighbors, even strangers. And we're going to talk about that next week on Saturday and Sunday. And I'm hoping you're here. Here's my plug. To come and hear God's Word about these things so that we might better discern what we as Christians have been called to that perhaps might even be as clear as what God said to Mary. Okay. We see that Mary was obedient. That she glorified God by proclaiming the resurrection and coming ascension of Jesus to the disciples. Capital D. And so as we think about this passage, this event in history, we should see that Jesus turns Mary's mourning into dancing that apparent defeat has been turned into unfathomable victory. We should see that God was working even when she didn't see it or believe it. That He comforts her. That she responds in worship to Him. That He sends her on a mission. And that she's obedient. In other words... She's confessed her mess. She's embraced the fullness of Jesus. And then she's walking in His ways. She's doing the gospel waltz. Are you? Or are you stuck in your mess? Are you failing to embrace the sufficiency of Jesus for those things uh, that are plaguing you? Or have you done that, but perhaps you have not embraced your mission from Him? Ponder these things. And do business with Jesus as we come to the table this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that uh, this is found in John's Gospel. And that John does what John always seems to do, is he narrows in on one person and discusses that person and how they encounter Jesus. But it's as if that person is every person. Just as the woman at the well was so much like us, and Nicodemus can be so much like us, here it's Mary. So Father, I ask that for those who are mourning this morning,
that you would turn their mourning to dancing. That you indeed would comfort them in their affliction because they remember that Jesus is resurrected. That Jesus is ascended. And that even though it doesn't look like it, Jesus sits on his throne. And so comfort them with those truths. That they have not been abandoned. But they must wait. And you will reveal great things. You will pour out great blessings. Father, be with us as a church as we seek to understand our place in this community, as we as individual and uh, Christians and families seek to understand our place in our communities, grant us wisdom and discernment in that, and by your Spirit may we act like Mary. (laughs) May we do that which you call us to do. And we ask these things uh, to the praise of your glorious grace. In Jesus' name, amen.